I don't even know what that is. So when we first started the church, we, it was me, I took myself so seriously. And I told uh, Jeff, who did our news, um, like, just get in there, give the news, be professional about it, and look how far we've come. <laughs> I love it. Now we just decide to be ourselves. And so we're weird. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We like to have fun. We like to laugh. And so that uh, Refuge News is like a perfect depiction of who we are. If this is your first time being here, sorry. <laughs> This is, this is just us. Um, my name is Tanya. My husband, Adam, and I lead this church together. Uh, we moved here seven years ago and started this church six years ago, and it's just been a wild ride. Uh, it's been one of the biggest joys of our life, um, right up there with uh, being a parent to our two kids. And so it's nice to meet you. I hope that you find us perfectly weird, um, just like you. And so uh, we're going to have a good time today. Uh, we are continuing on in our Advent series, and so uh, Adam started it off uh, with the title of The Lineage. In week one, we talked about Advent itself, and so the big idea, every week that we give a message, there's a big idea. So if you remember nothing from the message, or if somebody's like, what was the message at church about? You can tell them this one statement, and that just kind of blankets what the whole message is about. And so the big idea from week one was we needed him and he came. We need him still and he's coming again. Last week's message was about absence. And um, we talked about um, all about Jesus' lineage and just the broken and destroyed and really messed up people that were all part of Jesus' uh, genealogy. And so the big idea for last week was Jesus' lineage included moments of darkness. So what makes us believe that ours would be without it? This week, I'm talking about anticipation, and then next week, you have four opportunities to come, uh, and we will be discussing the arrival. And so the news said it, but just in case you were distracted by, like, our gangster uh, Rudolph and our elf, um, it's very important that you understand you don't have the opportunity to come here at 8, 9.30, or 11 on the 24th. On Sunday, we are only doing our Christmas Eve services, and so that's 2 and 4 p.m. on the 24th. If you're afraid of the crowds, of what they might be, or maybe you have uh, family obligations that you can't make it on the 24th, you have two opportunities on the 23rd, uh, so you can head over here at 4 or 6 p.m. All four services will be identical. So if you come to one, it's the same as all the other ones. And we do have um, opportunity for your kiddos, the little ones, five and under, uh, to just have their own fun. And that way you can have your own fun in here. And so uh, today's big idea, I have to start the whole message off with the big idea because everything else after this hinges on this one big idea. And so I was trying to think of ways that I could just like drop the big idea in later on in the message, but really the rest of the message is to support this big idea. The big idea is that anticipation is expectation plus preparation. And so we all talk about these words like they're interchangeable, anticipation and expectation, but there really is a difference. And the difference is when you're expecting but also preparing, that changes your posture into a posture of anticipation. And that's what we're going to talk about today is how to kind of change our perspective into one from expectation into anticipation. I have to start out with a story because it's my favorite thing to do. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about my childhood. So I grew up in Boston. If you're familiar with the Boston area at all, I'm from the South Shore, from 12 miles outside the city, um, from a town called Weymouth. And so the first house that I grew up in 
was the one actually my mom grew up in, and so she was one of seven kids. They lived with her mom and dad and also grandmother, so there was a house of 10, um, and that house was actually right on the ocean. So it was the house, the street, and then the beach. We owned a strip of the beach in front of our house. I never realized how cool that was until I moved to the Midwest where there's no sea breeze and no ocean. Um, so I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. Um, that house is always going to be really important to me. Um, all of my family members, uh, my cousins, my extended family have lived in that house at some point um, to the point that um, my cousins and I actually all went and got a tattoo of this house key. It's like the actual cut of the house key. Um, we all have this matching tattoo. So this house is so um, just special and has a lot of fond memories for me. And so when I was 10 years old, we moved across town, same town, still in Weymouth, but we actually moved into the house that my dad grew up in. And so we moved in, uh, my grandfather moved out and moved in uh, with my dad's brother um, as he was getting older and just needed some more care. And so we kept the house in the family. My parents took it over. And so this house is an old house and has lots of um, amazing features to it. Um, and so one feature I didn't know about this house for a long time was that there was actually a closet in the basement. That sounds creepy when I say it out loud. But we had uh, a closet in the basement that had a key, that had a lock, that was opened by a skeleton key. And so um, this, this basement... Well, we didn't do much in the basement as kids. I mean, there was a basement and then there was a cellar part of it that's actually like surrounded by like granite rock and it's just creepy and you just, there's no reason to go into the cellar. And so uh, one day, I don't know, I was probably like 11 or 12 years old. My brother came to me. My mom was gone. My brother came to me and he was like, hey, you want to see something cool? <laughs> okay, so first of all, if somebody ever says to you, do you want to see something cool? Only 50% of the time is it actually something cool. 90% of the time, somebody's going to get in trouble. And so obviously I was like, yeah. And so my brother showed me this key. Didn't know this key existed. So we had this big metal desk. Um, and in the middle of the desk, there was like a really narrow drawer that was over the part where you sit. I'm sure you guys are all picturing this desk because I feel like every teacher had this desk. And the depth of that drawer was the entire depth of the desk. And so if you pull that drawer out all the way, I don't know what he was doing that he found this, but if you pull the drawer out all the way, there was all these like organizers in that um, desk and up under one of the organizers was this key. And so he showed me the key and I was like, oh, that's cool. He was like, you know what it's to? The closet in the basement. Also sounds creepy. So we go downstairs. I've never been in, I've never seen this closet. Like I've passed it, never thought anything of of it. We actually had a deep freezer that was like right in front of it. Um, and so we went down there, opened it up, and inside was every single Christmas present my mom had bought. And so like the good kids we were, we never told her. And this went on for years that my mom would leave the house. We would run to the desk, pull out the key from the back, go down and look at every single Christmas present. I knew for years everything that I was getting for Christmas. It never spoiled. Like I, I tell somebody that story, they're like, oh, that's so sad. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's awesome. I always knew what I was getting for Christmas. I would like practice my response and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so surprised. Um, and so what was cool about it was that the driveway, if we were down in the basement, the driveway was right outside of where that closet was. So we could hear my mom when the car would pull back in the driveway. And so we could throw the things back in the closet, lock the door, run back upstairs, open the drawer, 
put the key back in and run and jump on the sofa with enough time because she had to pull in the driveway, pull up the hill, and then back into her spot. And so we had it like timed out perfectly. One day it all went to crap. Somehow my mom found out that we knew where the key was and she was big mad. <laughs> she was real mad. Um, and so my brother being the gem that he was, was like, well, Tanya did it. I'm like, whatever, you're the one who found the key. And so my mom was furious. What's really funny is when I asked her about um, having this key show for my message, she was like, oh yeah, I have it. I'm like, didn't you sell that house like six years ago, five years ago? Why do you still have that key? She's like, I left it unlocked, but I took the key with me. So whoever owns that house now, I got your key. Um, so I think I actually need to get another tattoo now on the other side. I've got more uh, space. So this key is really important to me because it, it gives me some really fond memories of Christmas. And I know you guys think it's really pathetic that I knew about all my Christmas presents. But what that did was it turned my anticipation of Christmas into, uh, sorry, it turned my expectation of Christmas into anticipation because I began preparation. So in the beginning of December, when little Tanya Gilo knew every Christmas present she got, she would go to her room, and I used to rearrange my room all the time. And so I would redecorate my room, rearrange, and prepare for what those gifts were that I knew were down in the basement. And so like one year, I don't know if you guys remember them, it's probably more a girl thing, but the inflatable furniture... I had an inflatable uh, armchair that I got from Delia's catalog. And so I remember rearranging my room randomly in December to make room for this armchair that I knew I would be opening up in a couple weeks. And so um, if it was clothes, I would like go through my closet and like clean and make space for them. Um, if it was toys, I would get rid of some extra things to make space and room for the new toys that I already knew everything that I was getting. And so I was, I'm a big proponent. I'm 38. I still think it's great to look for your Christmas presents. There's a little bit of thrill and adventure and a little bit of like deceit and like just, I don't know, it's just awesome. So my husband, I don't even know where my Christmas presents are, but I haven't, haven't really put a lot of effort into it this year. Um, <laughs> right. Okay, hold on a second. There's a story. He's actually currently mad at me. I didn't even tell this in the other services. So I happened to get all the Amazon receipts on email uh, through the church account. I just managed that email. We're getting admin in January, and so next Christmas will be a delight. But this Christmas, I got every email receipt. He didn't know that. And so one day he was like, hey, I got the kids something on Amazon. I was like, oh, I know. I already got the receipt. Dang it. And he was like, does that mean that you've found out all the other stuff that I've ordered on Amazon? And I was like, yes including my gifts. So I know a couple of my gifts that are coming from Amazon, and he's so mad about it, but it's not my fault. He's just mad that I didn't tell him. And I'm like, why would I tell you that? Why would I tell somebody that I know what I'm getting for Christmas? They end up being mad at you, gosh. So anyways, all right, so we are going to be turning our Christmas expectations into anticipation this year. And this is actually a biblical uh, principle of living without expectation. And so I can support that through a story in Luke 9. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he's sending them out. And so we jump into uh, Luke 9, uh, verse 1 through 3. It says, One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. He told them not to pack anything. And so when you're going on a trip, 
you're expecting certain things to happen, right? You're expecting the weather to be a certain way, so you're packing clothes that'll be appropriate for the temperature. You're expecting to do certain activities, so you're packing me. I'm packing shoes for each activity. So like, if I'm going to be walking around a lot, I'll pack sneakers. If I'm going to a nice dinner, I'll pack some nice shoes. If I'm going to the beach, I'll pack some sandals. And so I'm expecting certain things to happen on this trip. If I'm gone a certain number of days, I'm packing an outfit, plus like two extra pairs of underwear for each day. Does anybody else do that? Like you pack extra underwear. Like this is the week that I will start losing control of my bladder. And so I need to have like three pairs of underwear every single day. And so that's how you pack, right? You're expecting certain things to happen. But Jesus is telling the disciples, no expectations. Go out, don't pack a single thing. You're gonna be relying totally on me to meet every need that you have. And so for us to enter into the Christmas season, we're going to enter in with expectations plus preparation. What is the preparation? It's Advent. It's what this whole message, this whole month has been about is that Advent preparing our hearts for the Christmas season. It gives us the opportunity to turn Christmas into anticipation. And so this whole concept of um, Advent, I've heard of Advent before, but I've never really practiced Advent. Um, And part of Advent, not um, everybody does this, but there's something called the Jesse tree. We've kind of given a little nod to it in some of the earlier messages, but it's just um, following through Jesus's genealogy and lineage to see how it all kind of comes together so perfectly as only God could to bring the story of Jesus to us, but connect all the other stories in his lineage together. And so when I was talking with my counselor, I was talking about just the darkness and the heaviness that's been in our state through shootings and um, through like some real suffering and struggles that I know have been happening within our church community. And, you know, us as pastors, like we carry that with you. And so I was just talking to her about just, it just seems so heavy and it's really hard to get into Christmas. And she was like, that really reminds me of the Christmas story. And I was like, hmm, unpack that for me. And she said it was so dark and heavy at the time that Jesus came, the Israelites, they're under um, this Roman oppression and um, the Jews are just hated and they're, and they're in hiding and it's been, there's been 400 years of silence and they just don't know when this Messiah is coming. They're expecting him to come, but they don't know when he's going to come. And so that's where Jesus comes into. And so there's this book that she recommended to me. It's called The Greatest Gift. It's by Ann Voskamp. It's actually a little bit older, and so it's really cheap on Amazon. Um, makes a great gift. Just make sure she doesn't get the receipt if you, <laughs> if you get it for anybody. Um, but it's, it's written in such a poetic way. Each chapter is a different day of the month. And um, so, you know, December 17th, I can sit down and just read this, like, two-minute little um, blip about um, whatever today was about Bethlehem. And so um, I've loved, like, just taking a little pause in my day to read about Advent. And so I'm just going to, in my message, I just want to share a little bit of this with you as we prepare ourselves um, in anticipation of the Christmas season. Advent, it comes from the Latin It means coming. When you open the pages of scripture to read of his coming, of this first advent, before you ever read of the birth of Jesus, you always have the genealogy of Jesus. It's the way the gift unwraps. You have Christ's family tree before you have a Christmas tree. If you don't come to Christmas through Christ's family tree, and you come to the Christmas story just at the Christmas tree, this is hard to understand the meaning of his coming. 
Because without the genealogy of Christ, the limbs of his past, the branches of his family, and the love story of his heart that's been coming for you since before the beginning, how does Christmas and its tree stand? It's possible for you to miss it, to brush past it, to rush through it, to not see how it comes for you up over the edges of everything, quiet and unassuming and miraculous, how every page of the word has been writing it, reaching for you, coming for you. And you could wake on Christmas only to grasp that you never took the whole of the gift, the wide expanse of grace. So now we pause, still, ponder, hush, wait. Each day of Advent, he gives you the gift of time so you have time to be still and wait. Sometimes the heart waiting for the gift is the art of the gift. So this, in all honesty, is not a Christmas message. Talking about turning expectations into anticipation through your preparation, this could apply at any point in your life through different ways that you're seeing and expecting God to work. And we're going to talk about how to turn that into anticipation of God's moving. But this is a lot like Christmas movies. And so I'm about to blow up some of your Christmas movies. And so if you take a Christmas movie, you remove Christmas from the plot, if the movie can still stand without Christmas in the plot, it's no longer a Christmas movie. And so uh, take, for example, Home Alone. If you, remove home, uh, if you remove Christmas from the movie Home Alone, all you have is a family that went on vacation, left their kid behind, and there's a breaking and entry into a home and micro-machines and paint cans and blow torches. But it's not necessarily a Christmas movie. Sorry. Um... What was the other one that we did? Uh, Elf. If we remove uh, Christmas from Elf, does the story still make sense? No. no. You have to have Christmas. Therefore, Elf is a Christmas movie. Um, it's a wonderful life. If you remove Christmas from that, all you have is a family business, a bank audit, missing money. This guy encounters an angel. He sees what his life would have been without him in it. And so if Christmas is not part of that story, the plot still stands. I was schooled this morning <laughs> that Die Hard is in fact a Christmas movie because I just got all the attention of the guys. Um, because without Christmas, there would have been no Christmas party. Therefore, there would be no hostages. Therefore, Bruce Willis would have just wasted his time. There you go. My gift to you. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I've actually never seen it. That's on my homework for this week is to watch uh, Die Hard. Yes. So, so what we're going to do now is we're going to turn this message into a Christmas message. And so I'm going to weave the Christmas story into this message in a way that makes it not be able to stand without Christmas as part of the storyline and the plot of this story. And so we have Mary and Joseph. And what do we say when people are pregnant? They are expecting, right? And so I believe that it is possible for somebody to expect a baby, but not prepare for a baby. Therefore, they're not anticipating. But Mary and Joseph were very much anticipating the arrival of Jesus. I mean, Mary had 
come to a point where she could have been killed over this. And Joseph, because of uh, his encounter with the angel, decided to not press any charges on her for her adultery, right? So there had been a lot of preparation getting to this point of the arrival of Jesus. So Jesus comes, he's born to this anticipating couple, but there's actually other people as part of the Christmas story that had been anticipating his arrival. And so we're going to skip... Um, 33 years to 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Okay, so Luke 2.21, we jump in and it says, Eight days later when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given to him by the angel, even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, the law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. And so they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so I said 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And then I jumped in and then I said eight days later. So you're like, okay, was this eight days later after Jesus is born or is this 40 day old Jesus that we're jumping into this story? And so it's actually 40 days because I'm just going to give you a little bit history lesson because I love this stuff. Um, it's uh, the next verse says, then it was time for the purification offering. That then is a jump of 33 days. And we know that because in Leviticus, there's Levitical law, and this is where I start to lose some people, but let me tell you that the Old Testament is so rich and so incredible because when you read these crazy laws, like in Leviticus, you see that they were given to the people to show them how far and how impossible it was for them to achieve salvation by keeping the law. And that was why Jesus came, because he came to be made uh, flesh for them as a baby in the manger, to later die on the cross to atone for their sins. They no longer had to keep all these law to try to atone for their sins. But when we're back in Leviticus, we read that um, there's the birth of the child, and then there's seven days of being unclean because of touching blood. So anybody who comes in contact, any Jew who comes in contact at any point, not just birth, was unclean for seven days. So if you cared for a wounded person, if you touched a dead body, anything dealing with blood, uh, that person is unclean for seven days. I'm going to assume also that that meant that Joseph, because he was the OB uh, who delivered Jesus, came into some contact with blood. Sorry, guys. Um, and so they're unclean for seven days. The Levitical law says after seven days, then the circumcision takes place and they name the baby. And then there's an additional 33 days that the woman must wait until all blood flow is done and they're ready to uh, go make their final sacrifice and that will complete the purification ceremony. What's interesting is actually if she gave birth to a girl, she had to wait 66 days. You got 33 for the female and then 33 for the baby. And so Jesus was a boy. And so they waited 33 days. So that totaled 40 days after his birth. Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem. They entered the, ta uh, the temple to give the sacrifice. And so this same chapter in Leviticus that's outlining all this stuff actually says that the couple is to bring a lamb and a, a bird, either a turtle dove or a pigeon. 
But if they couldn't afford a lamb, they could bring two birds. And so when we read about this, we see Mary and Joseph coming to Jerusalem with um, two birds. So that tells us that they were also very poor. And so as they're entering into the temple to make this sacrifice, to complete the purification ceremony of Mary delivering Jesus, they encounter a man named Simeon. We're going to jump into his story in Luke 2.25. It says, At that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple, and so when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. Simeon was expecting. It says that in verse 25, he was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel, but he was also preparing. So we know that Simeon was anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. How was he preparing? Simeon was preparing relationally. His relationship, we just read all about his relationship with the Holy Spirit through that chapter. The Holy Spirit says in verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, it says that the Holy Spirit revealed things to him. It says, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. The Holy Spirit also led him. In verse 27, it says that the that day the Lord, uh, the Spirit led him to the temple. And so Simeon has this relationship with the Holy Spirit, that he listens to these nudges of the Holy Spirit. He acts on them. His relationship with the Holy Spirit allowed him to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that this is not something that just comes instantly. This is something that comes through practice, through listening, through acting, through developing a relationship, through reading God's word and discovering things that do sound like his voice. That's why the enemy, when he comes and talks to you, we we read about this when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. We read about this in the Garden of Eden. When Satan comes, he takes a shred of truth and he twists it just enough. So when you know God's word and you know what to expect and you know the things that sound like his voice, you can easily recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit through that deep relationship. It's like when my husband calls me, I don't answer the phone and say, hello, hi, this is Adam. Adam who? Adam Harold. Oh, my husband. I know his voice, right? And so I can just answer the phone, hear his voice, and we'll just get right into whatever the conversation is. And so when you have that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit, we'll have people come to us and say, how do I, how do I know the voice of God? How do I discern, like, is this my thought or is this the voice of the Lord? It's through your relationship. It's through practice. It's through um, knowing what his voice sounds like and the things that you would expect. And then maybe even comparing that back to Scripture. Is this consistent with God's word? And then maybe sometimes it even gets echoed to you a few times. That's what happens to me a lot is that, Um, God will speak to me more than once. And I'm like, okay, this message keeps coming up. Like, this is definitely something from God. Or maybe it's through another voice that's like, hey, I don't know if this means anything to you, but I just feel like you need encouraged in this area. And so what that takes for us, though, is a little bit of bravery and a little bit of willingness to maybe feel or look a little foolish. And so because Simeon stepped out in obedience, he heard the prompting of the Holy Spirit. He went to the temple. 
He wasn't just like walking in like, I don't know why I'm here. He was determined. He knew something good was happening that day because the Holy Spirit had told him to go. And so he goes into the temple, and it actually allows us to encounter one of the most tender scenes in all of Scripture. And it wasn't until this week that I was reading and preparing that I read this, and I was like, oh, my gosh. But it says in Luke 2:28, he took the child in his arms and praised God. Simeon has the distinction of being the only person in the Bible who, are we, who we are explicitly told held Christ. That's such a powerful moment to think about. And so I, I would try to say it eloquently, but I can't, so I'm just going to jump back into a little bit of Ann Voskamp in The Greatest Gift. She says, Big and glossy, loud and fast, that's how this bent world turns. But God, when he comes, shows up in this fetal ball. He who carved the edges of the cosmos carved himself into a fetal ball in the dark, tethered himself to the uterine wall of a virgin, and let his cells divide, light splitting all white. He gave up the heavens that were not large enough to contain him and let himself be held in a hand. The mystery so large becomes a baby so small, an infinite God becomes infant. The giver becomes the gift. This quiet offering, this heart beating in the chest cavity of a held child, the thrumming heartbeat, hope, beating change, beating love, beating the singular song that you have been waiting for, that the whole dizzy planet has been spinning around and waiting for. We also see as this scene is unfolding, Simeon's holding Jesus. Mary and Joseph are there. They must be in awe of what's happening. And in walks Anna. Anna, in Luke 2.36, it tells us Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married for only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God and fasting and praying. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Anna prepared as well. She prepared positionally. Some of her positions that she assumed were ones that were just given to her, like that of being a prophet. But some were positions that she willingly jumped into. So we see in verse 36, it tells us Anna, a prophet, was also there. She's from uh, the tribe of Asher, the daughter of Phanuel. That's just something that she was just born into. But Anna also positioned herself as a servant to God. Anna knew heartache. She knew grief. She knew loss. I'm willing to say that she'd ask God why time and time again. But she still chose to position herself as a servant. In verse 37, it says, Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and with prayer. What do you do with your grief? With your questions of why? Does it cause distance between you or God? You and God, or does it cause you to jump more into your relationship with God, to lean in on him and say, I may never understand why, but I know that I can be a servant to you. And so Anna did that with her time as a widow. She positioned herself as a servant to God, and it led her 
into being a witness of God. She was both a witness of God in the flesh, but she was also a witness to others when she talked to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Anna had a big mouth. I love it. She was so excited about what she had just encountered. She couldn't keep it inside. She had to tell everybody that she encountered right away. So here we see Simeon's response is one of blessing God. And Anna's response is one of telling everybody that she came into contact with about what was happening, what was unfolding. And so that's, that's up to you on what your response is going to be. Anna and Simeon were both very old. We know this. Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. This isn't really a prayer that you make when you're in your 30s, right? But it's one that you'll, you'll make when you're towards the end of your life and you're ready to die. And so uh, Simeon, we know he's probably up there in age. Same with Anna. It said that she lived as a widow to the age of 84. And both of these people had essentially come to the end of themselves. And that's when Christ entered in. It's when you're at the end of yourself, when you have no idea how to take the next step forward, where your next breath is going to come from, that's when Christ enters the scene. It's time for us to stop expecting God to show up in situations and start anticipating him to show up. What are you doing to prepare for God to show up in your situations? We all have situations. There's all heavy and hard things that we carry. I know that every person is in here and you've got something in your brain that you're like, yep, that's my thing. Like this, this is really hard. This is something that I'm trying to figure out. This is something that I'm expecting God to show up in. And so I'm praying and I'm expecting God because I know he's faithful and I'm here and I'm coming to church and I'm doing the right things, but I, I just expect him to show up. Well, maybe it's time for you to start preparing for him to show up and turn your expectation into anticipation. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you don't know what the future holds for you. Maybe it's been a long battle and the things that you promised years ago aren't the things that are happening right now. And so instead of expecting God to show up, prepare for God to show up by praying for your spouse, by serving your spouse without expectation of reciprocation on their part. Maybe you need to start communicating with your spouse in a different way. Maybe you not need to start communicating with a counselor with your spouse. Maybe you need to lean into friends who, who have good, strong marriages and stop leaning into your single friends for marital advice or your friends that have been divorced. Don't ask them for marital advice. Ask the people who have been married 84 years how they're doing it. Maybe the area is the finances and there's this gap that you don't know how to, how to bridge. And so you're expecting God to show up because you're a faithful person, but you're not quite sure how that's gonna happen. Start preparing yourself now. Start living generously. Start living in obedience with your money. Start doing things that God tells you. He tells us to live on the 90 and trust him with the 10 when 100% is really all his and given to us. But if he can't trust us with a little, it says in God's word that he's not gonna give us a lot. And so start practicing with your little like you would if you have a lot. Steward well what you have. Live with a budget, be intentional, lean into people. I feel like when it comes to finances, people carry this like shame, like I should have known better. And so I can't tell anybody that I'm struggling. There's so much shame when it comes to asking for help. And instead, why don't you lean into people and allow us the opportunity to connect you with people who 
are doing finances well. It's amazing, actually. We just had somebody that was a financial planner that uh, comes to the church that reached out to Adam this week. I'm like, this is perfect. Like, this is what community is about, that we can connect people together, that we can use our gifts to help prepare us and to help um, be ready in anticipation for God to show up. And so maybe if, you're, if your thing is finances, be honest with where you're at. Maybe your thing is your workplace. You hate your job. You don't see a point in your job. You don't know when the job is going to end. Or maybe you just, you pray every day like, God, I just, I, I give me something else. Like, I really hate this. Maybe this is just a season that you're in this job. Or maybe there's a reason that you're in this job. And so how do you prepare yourself with your ride to work? Shut the radio off and start preparing your heart to get there. Pray and ask God to allow you to be a light in that dark workplace. Act in a way that your character would speak more about you when you're not in the room than when your boss is in the room and somebody's saying something about you that that's not true. When your character is consistent, people will be like, that, that's not possible. Like, I know the character of that person. Maybe you need to be different in your workplace, and then your workplace would change. Maybe, maybe your thing is your children. Maybe you're unsure about their future and you worry about their safety and you worry about the next step they're going to take. You worry about the relationships and the choices that they're making. The way that you prepare for your children could just be just in prayer. It could be in praying for their future spouse, for your relationship with your future in-laws. It could be in establishing non-negotiables within your house. I can't tell you how many times Adam and I as youth pastors had people come to us when their child was 18 and they're like, my kid just, they're self-centered. Like they, they don't, I can't get them to come to church. They don't think about anybody but themselves. But yet you've been living in a way that your whole world has revolved around your child up until this point. Why are they going to change the way they behave now that they're an adult and not be self-centered? Everything's revolved around your sports schedule or your friend's schedule or what you want to do or what you don't want to do or what you feel like or what makes you not throw a fit. And so instead of that, maybe we should establish some non-negotiables and establish some values within our family. Don't, don't parent with rules, parent with values. And so instead of saying, we will go to church on Sunday. We won't do this on Sunday. We will do this. Maybe we teach some values of we will put God first. And then everything else flows from that. And so that helps your child when they get into their future, they can line up. Does this line up with my family values of the way that I was raised? They don't have to think about rules because when you're 18, your parents' rules don't really apply to you anymore. But their values are something that you will carry with you for the rest of your life. Maybe your thing is your faith and you're just not sure where you are in your faith journey or what your next step is. I can tell you right now, everybody has a next step. That's why we have an entire space dedicated to next steps. We will die on the hill of next steps. And so if your next step is just prioritizing Jesus in your life, whether it's the first time or first time in a long time, we have people that are there after every single service that would love to pray with you. Maybe it's getting involved in community and um, breaking the curse of loneliness in your life. That's small groups, and we would love to help you sign up for a small group. Maybe it's saying, 
You know, I've lived as an Anna. I've lived with years of grief. I've lived with years of heartache, but I know that I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to be healed of my sadness to serve. And so position yourself as a servant and you can do that on the dream team. I can tell you that the best healing comes through serving others. It's also the opportunity to create the space for people to encounter and to experience the things that help bring the healing for you. And so stop being self-centered with your time and your gifts and your talents and jump into serving on the dream team. The Next Steps area can help you do that. Or maybe it's your faith and just being bold and public with that. Whether somebody made the decision for you to be baptized as a child and you want to make that for yourself, maybe you were already baptized, but your faith and your life looks totally different than it did then, or maybe this is the first time and you just feel this nudge of like, that's, that's for me, December 31st, I need to sign up to get baptized. Next Steps is there for that for you as well. And so whatever it is that your next step is, I just, my prayer for you is that you can turn this season of expectation into a season of anticipation through the way that you're preparing yourself. So if you guys would, I'm just going to have you stand as I pray for you and just pray over the rest of this season for us. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the gifts that it is um, that we can enter into this season through a posture of preparation that we can anticipate not just the arrival of the celebration of the birth of Jesus, but also the celebration that we will encounter at the arrival of Jesus again, Lord. We thank you in advance for that. And we, we just, we're weary and we're tired and we're just so ready for you to come back and to, to bring us home, Lord. I just pray for every situation that's in this uh, building right now, Lord, for the heavy and the hard things that people are carrying with them, Lord, whether it's whether it's a marriage or child relationship, whether it's a workplace, whether it's finances or faith, Lord, I just ask that you would help turn this position um, into one of preparation, Lord, that you would just help people to lean in, to take some godly advice, to seek some counsel, to make some moves, to act out in courage and in faith, to turn their expectation of your showing up into one of anticipation, Lord. We praise you in advance for the ways that you're going to show up because we know that you are faithful and good. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.